Well, thank you, worship team, and thank you for coming this morning. Take your Bibles, find a Bible, open a Bible on app or something, and come to 1 Corinthians 7 with me this morning. The Bible's here. It'd be page uh, 927 if you're using one of ours. First Corinthians, as most of you know, is a letter from 2,000 years ago that God inspired for the Apostle Paul to write to the church in the city of Corinth, an ancient but uh, major metropolitan center of the day where Paul had planted, started a church a few years earlier, and they had run into some problems, and so he writes them a letter. Um, when I was a student in seminary in Dallas, Shortly after the earth's crust hardened, <laughs> one, of, one of the classes I took was this book, 1 Corinthians. And one of the major assignments of that year was I had to pick one of three subjects addressed in 1 Corinthians and do kind of a deep dive into that subject. They were subjects that are both uh, controversial and um, critical but difficult for churches. So it's really a good, good, good assignment for a, a pastor in training to do that. The three subjects from 1 Corinthians I could pick from were uh, the role of women in the church, and we'll come to that in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, uh, speaking in tongues, that's chapters 12 and 14, and divorce and remarriage. That's uh, part of our chapter, part of our study here today. That's the one I chose. And uh, I was just hoping to be able to sort out what I believe the Bible teaches on divorce and remarriage while I was in a classroom and not, you know, talking to, to people you, you know and love, just trying to sort out what is God saying biblically. Uh, so verses 10 to 16 of this passage address divorce and remarriage. But before we get to that issue, uh, Paul addresses another question that the Corinthians had asked him. Uh, it's, a, it's a simple point, but maybe a surprising subject almost to find in the Bible or to be talking about in church, and that is the subject of the importance of sexual intimacy in marriage. Here's the first three verses. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Some of your Bibles say it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. About this point, maybe some of you wish you had read the online outline on Friday when it's posted to decide, do you want to come to church today? I don't know. But seriously, we sometimes, we sometimes might think that the Bible is about these uh, safe, vague subjects, you know, Love God, be nice, be good. I hope you realize that God's Word never avoids difficult issues. It never avoids specific issues of real life, including here, sex life in marriage. Of course, if you were here last week, you, you knew that as well, because in chapter 6, the subject was sexual purity, and God's Word says, don't have sex before marriage. It dishonors God because it dishonors your body and God's intent for marriage. So 
now we discover that God is clearly not against sex because it's crucial to marriage and family. And in fact, his subject here in these first nine verses is the importance of sexual intimacy when you are married. So they asked the question, evidently, chapter 7, verse 1, the matters you wrote about. There's a letter that evidently was written to Paul. Paul is in Ephesus when he writes this letter to Corinth. So it's a couple days journey between them. Um, some of the issues that, that uh, 1 Corinthians addresses, there's like almost a list of here's this issue, this issue, this issue. It's a list. And uh, some of those issues Paul had heard about. Someone came and told him, hey, this is a problem at the church there in Corinth. Others, evidently, he uh, got a letter from them specifically asking these questions. And so we have to kind of guess a little bit. So when you read Paul's answer, you can kind of guess at what the question was, right? And so this one was something about uh, sexual intimacy and marriage. But I think we know what the issue was, and that is that some were in Corinth were promoting celibacy as being more spiritual. And Paul writes to say, no, actually, sexual intimacy in marriage is God's plan uh, for moral living. The last line of verse 1 is a little puzzling. What's it saying? It's a, it literally does say it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Actually, though, that is not Paul's statement. Paul is quoting, it seems, most Bible scholars agree, he's quoting what the Corinthians said. Certain, certain Corinthians were promoting celibacy. You shouldn't touch a woman, uh, which was actually a, a kind of a colloquialism for you shouldn't marry. So he is saying, don't get married. But Paul didn't say that. He's quoting them, I believe. And so we realize that in, in, in Corinth, there were some really extreme views about sexuality. Because last week, we saw that he was addressing the extreme of those who said, uh, kind of like today's saying, your body, your choice, you can do anything you want sexually, and says, no, that's one extreme. But there was also this extreme of the, what are called ascetics. The ones who would say, you know, don't indulge in anything. A definition of asceticism. It was found in many religions and really is today as well. A dictionary says it's the practice of severe self-discipline and abstention from all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. And so uh, in different religious societies, you'll find those extremes where someone uh, deprives themselves of maybe all money, uh, all alcohol, entertainment, sex, food, meat, etc. And probably at the core, ascetics are trying to somehow deal with uh, guilt issues. Um, some are seeking to earn greater merit with God by these extreme forms of, of uh, depriving themselves. Um, actually, I think this is found too often in Christianity, uh, something that I think we could call legalism. It's areas where God has given us some freedom, but someone says, no, I'm more holy because I don't do these things. Now, some of these things could be very good choices, but it's the idea of I'm more spiritual, I'm more holy for what I don't do. So Paul had a real challenge writing to the Corinthian church because he needs to address both those who abuse freedom to say you can do anything. In fact, if you remember last week, chapter 6, verse 15 to 17, some were still going to prostitutes, and then they were saying that that's okay. 
So you got the extreme freedom issue, but now you have the legalistic ascetics who said either you shouldn't marry, or maybe worse, if you are married, you should not have sex, although you are married. So he's dealing with some, some extreme issues, and Paul says, no, that's not God's plan at all. He says, verse 2, but since there is so much immorality, that would be true today, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And in term, even in uh, the Greek term for have, is, it's, uh, it's a technical term for have sexually. So uh, don't misread this negatively like God says, okay, I guess. Uh, but rather, positively, get married. This is God's plan for morality. God created uh, sexual pleasure not to be associated with guilt and shame that so often comes and hurt or whatever that comes with uh, so-called sexual freedoms, but rather he designed it for marriage where it belongs. So Paul could have stopped there and I, we'd say, we get the point. But he continues, presses the point where it's almost embarrassing sometimes to read publicly. This is the stuff married people talk about at home, right? So again, picking up with verse 3, now through verse 5. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Um, we all know that sexual talk and innuendo permeates our, our entertainment and our uh, comedians to, to, to laugh at it. But Paul's not laughing about it, is, it? is he? He's, he's dead serious. Uh, Paul didn't write about this subject trying to sell more copies of this letter. Paul is God's spokesperson to speak to life where we really live, and he's saying that married people need to pursue and prioritize a healthy sex life. Now, understand, having rights does not mean one can be insensitive or demanding. Uh, great marriages are built on giving up rights, uh, Ephesians 5, speaking specifically there to husbands. Uh, love like Christ, giving up rights. Um, this is written not to inform married persons of our rights, but rather to inform us of our spouse's rights. So what is most sensitive? What is most caring? Because if you're not sensitive or caring, that's not godly. But the other hand, this is clearly saying that to withhold sexual intimacy selfishly or to punish or to manipulate is also not godly. It is wrong. So that's basically God's plan that, uh, of course, there are sometimes health issues that could interfere with this plan, but short of that, if you're married and you want to honor God, you uh, and your spouse, by mutual consent, it says, need to figure out how to apply the priority God places here. Why? Verse 4 is a reason. Verse 5 is a warning. The wife's body does not belong to her alone. Likewise, husband doesn't belong to him alone. Your body belongs to each other. Uh, the passage that uh, Pastor Nate read to begin with about uh, the beginning of marriage, the first marriage, Adam and Eve, God performed the first <laughs> wedding ceremony. 
when he said the two will become one flesh. There is something, something sacred about that covenant where you become one entity, though you are, are two people, and so your body belongs also to each other. Last week, in chapter 6, Paul was saying, your body is united to Christ, spiritually as a believer in Christ, and so you can't dishonor God with your body. Your body belongs to Christ. Here, he's saying in this horizontal human relationship, core human relationship of marriage, your body belongs to the other, to your spouse, so don't withhold it. The world's view of marriage, if they bother with it at all, is not about giving something up, giving up rights, but rather about getting something. I believe it to be an advantage to me because, and finances or, or, or whatever it might be, but um, it's giving up rights. Larry Crabb, a Christian counselor and author, uh, said one time that, wrote one time that if we were honest in our wedding vows, you know, you're, you're standing in front of the church or whatever, if we were honest, we'd be saying, here I am with all of my needs for you to meet. When in fact, we should be saying exactly the opposite. Here I am by God's grace, seeking to be an instrument of God to, to meet some of your needs. So God's word always kind of turns our own selfish ideas on its head, doesn't it? Um, and in a good way, good news is, that just as being united with Christ will mean sacrifices, but spiritual privileges and emotional privileges and psychological privileges when you unite your heart to Christ by faith in Him. So just as being united with Christ brings privileges, being united as God intends with your spouse, though it means sacrifice in so many ways, will also bring with it the joys uh, uh, and, and, and privileges of, of marriage. Here's the warning. If we, if we ignore this and say, no, I have my rights, Satan's temptations for the married person grow stronger when abstaining. Do not, verse 5, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer, then come together again so that Satan, there's a spiritual element here, that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Some of your Bible translations you're looking at might say, stop defrauding each other. And, and that's actually more of a literal term because it's, a, it's, a fin it's from the financial world. This, this term is stop defrauding. Uh, even in early chapter 6, it was saying how if you sue your brother over a financial thing, you know, don't, don't defraud each other financially. This would be like, like stealing a privilege God intended for your marriage. When selfishness and bitterness invade a marriage, obviously it affects the sex life. It's hard to celebrate a relationship where there are unaddressed anger issues, uh, control issues, manipulation, bitterness, etc. Yeah. Deal with the problem and don't just address the symptom by marching out this verse because God wants to use that we'll see a little later God wants to use the inherent problems of a relationship to actually grow us in our holiness so don't deprive except by mutual consent actually that's a word from the uh, uh, music uh, world it's it's a word for symphony so you got 
two, two notes, but they harmonize. And, and that's how it's describing uh, sexual decisions in a, in a married couple's life. Do what you agree on together. Don't withhold, but by mutual consent, Paul, Paul says here, you may abstain to pray. And in verse 6, that's followed up, I believe, as part of this. I say this as a concession, not as a command. In other words, uh, it seems like Paul was asked by the ascetics, well, you know, is it okay to abstain so that we can pray more? I'm just saying in all my years as pastor, I've never heard that one. But uh, he's saying it's okay. I'm not promoting that view, but I, 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 I understand if that's your, if that's your bent that you would, you would focus so much spiritually that you would actually abstain for a time. But he says then, don't, don't make that any kind of a permanent arrangement. Come together again so that Satan will not tempt you. That society was very sex-saturated, as is ours. And God knows that... Uh, his design of combining uh, sexual purity with sexual fulfillment is his plan for marriage. So bottom line, God designed marriage couples to have a healthy sex life far better than the world because it's not accompanied by the hurt and guilt and so forth, but rather two people who are partnered in life to honor God. So is marriage Therefore, God's will for everyone. Paul quickly says, no, no. Verse 7, I wish that all men were as I am. Paul was single. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, one has, another has that. So some the gift is marriage and some the gift is singleness. But to the, verse 8, now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, pretty blunt, right? But Paul is saying in verse six, uh, 7, he preferred singleness. He recommended singleness, but acknowledged that marriage is best for others. Paul is saying that him, for him personally, um, God had given him some sense of what we could call celibacy, the contentment to live without sexual fulfillment. But then he speaks directly to singles, verse seven, uh, 8 and 9, to the unmarried, and what does I say? It's good to stay unmarried. Uh, being, being single is not second-rate Christianity. I know that sometimes it can feel like everybody else is, is, is paired up, but singleness is good, Paul says. Uh, he was single, and in fact, it's kind of ironic that our best passages on marriage, our most clear passages on marriage are all written by Paul, who is single. Uh, in the New Testament. But that's simply God inspiring someone to write Scripture for us. And in verse 9, Paul repeats the basic advantage of Mary. marriage is uh, moral living. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. Of course, referring to uh, God's created natural sexual desires. And uh, Again, the world is so brazen, so we might as well hear God speak, right? And God says, either A, self-control, or B, marriage is another option. So that's our, that's our choices for moral, holy living. Paul can seem almost critical of those who marry in verse 9, but he simply is saying that God's plan is 
uh, for sexual fulfillment in marriage, which helps, does not eliminate, but helps uh, Satan's many temptations of, of lust. So Paul has looked at sexuality from the single side, and he's looked at it from the married side and says marriage is good and singleness is good too. Now, verses 10 through 19, Paul gets very real about the struggles that marriages encounter. Um, marriages fall apart. People leave. Divorce. This passage answers specific questions, it seems, that had been written to Paul, so don't expect it to answer every question. But we'll look briefly at some other passages of Jesus that directly affect uh, understanding divorce and remarriage. Verse 10 and 11. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, so it came from specific revelation. A wife must not, uh, you may have the term divorce or separate or leave from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and vice versa, husband must not divorce his wife. Married Christians should not divorce, but if they do, they should remain unmarried or reconciled. This may be the first time some of you have heard or read that that's in the Bible, and it can surprise, it can, it can maybe bother you, because you may have experienced divorce. You may have experienced, you may be remarried, uh, maybe more than once. So first of all, let me clarify this. Rest assured that whatever marital state you are in right now, is God's will for you. In fact, if you glance ahead to verse 17, which is the beginning of our next week's passage, nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So you can know that whatever your marital state is right now is God's will for you. Stay put. So if after studying what God's word says here today, it causes you to question, you know, you know maybe... In the past, I made a wrong decision, either by getting divorced or by getting remarried. I wonder if that really was God's will. What should you do? Nothing but rest in the grace of God. And whether you are convinced you did the wrong thing or convinced you, are did, you did the right thing, rest in God's grace, whatever your marital status is, Rest in God's grace. You don't need to defend yourself. You don't need to do what some call forgiving yourself. Because if something was done wrong, God does the forgiving, right? Past, present, future. So you, you, can, you can take a deep breath. But if God speaks to you as, as a married person and you are contemplating separation or divorce or remarriage, then it's time to say, okay, what is God's word saying to me now? A command, he says, uh, not I but the Lord. In other words, and the Lord, by the way, in the New Testament refers to Jesus specifically. So somehow, uh, Jesus, because he was revealing scripture at that time, Jesus was speaking, the ascended, risen Jesus, uh, was speaking to Paul directly these words. So, Jesus' command was this, a wife must not divorce um, her husband. Now, 
your Bible might read words, I think I found at least four different ways, separate, divorce, leave, depart. Uh, I really think this, this original term in the first century means divorce. They've found um, uh, some legal documents from the first century at the same time using this term repeatedly for legal divorce. So I, I really think it means divorce. A wife must not divorce. But if she does, so someone did, Paul's a realist, she does divorce, then what? Whether, I mean, whether before Paul's letter, after Paul's letter, then what? Remain unmarried or be reconciled. Uh, this is hard truth. It's a simple statement, but it's, uh, it's something that if you're contemplating one of these steps, you do have to grapple with this somehow as a believer in Christ. But by the way, this is about divorce. This is not about separation for the sake of safety. Any, any, uh, any married person, any, any mom or dad needs to uh, seek God's wisdom about how to be safe, what needs to be done to be safe or to keep children safe. So sometimes because of various forms of abuse, someone must seek safety. That just simply is not the subject here at all. This is about, Paul's kind of like giving the, the black and white uh, issues here. The first line of verse 10 is written to wives or women. And uh, is it a different command for men? At the end of verse 11, a husband must not divorce his wife. It's actually the same command, but it's a different word that is used for divorce. There were multiple words for divorce. Um, to the wives, Paul uses the term that means to leave. Divorce by leaving. And to the husbands, he uses the word for to send uh, divorce by sending. Uh, in a culture that probably gave men more rights to send away a wife, um, Paul is actually, though, putting men and women on equal grounds, counter to his culture, and says, no, it works both ways, but he did use maybe the terminology that was most prevalent then. If this was the only passage on divorce and remarriage, there could be really no debate don't divorce, don't remarry. And Paul is definitely saying, and probably we'd all agree if we are Bible-believing people, we'd all agree that is God's best and first uh, plan to marriages, even with problems. Because Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So marriage being indeed a covenant before God, we would want to, to honor that. So that means deal with the problems. Uh, don't run, don't avoid. Pray deeply. Uh, talk things through, get counsel, persevere. Uh, maybe as a, as a Christian, you or, or someone else you know has really tried that, but the marriage dissolved anyway, or uh, perhaps you are remarried. Or maybe uh, the, your questions arise because your marriage right now is struggling deeply, and yet you as a, a follower of Christ uh, care about God's uh, plan you want to keep your vows. You want to improve your marriage. You want to please God. You want to persevere. You are, you are praying. You are trusting God. You are searching your heart uh, in humility. You, you need to know that God keep deeply, he knows those things. He, he cares about your hurt. Uh, pray that God will heal your marriage. But that, there's that question in your mind, isn't there? But is there ever a time where... God would say, yes, divorce, 
You need, divorce is, is allowed and, and, and remarriage is allowed. And that's an issue where sincere Bible-believing Christians, scholars, students, whatever, uh, disagree somewhat because, and there's a, there's a good reason why, it's because the comments of the, the statements of Jesus, when he's speaking to the disciples in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sometimes give an exception and sometimes uh, do not. And that's, that's a bit puzzling to us because, according to Paul, Jesus gave him these words as well. So as a, trying to interpret and understand, we, we have to try to figure those things out. Um, there are some uncertainties. I, I'm not, we're not going to do a deep dive into them or, or how I've arrived at my, uh, my own personal conclusions, but I think that we, we need to just look at what some of these passages say. Jesus on divorce Sometimes used an exception, sometimes did not. Matthew 5, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for immorality causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Clearly an exception of some kind. And Matthew 19, 9, also the same book, same author, uses the same exception. But you go to Mark, and Mark is actually recording the exact same incident, same conversation between Jesus and the disciples, <clears throat> and he records the same statement without the exception. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. No exception mentioned. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Luke does uh, virtually the same thing uh, in the teaching of, of Jesus. And so we're, we're left with kind of a, a, one of those puzzling things of Scripture. Uh, so What's he, what's he really saying? There's a, there's some, there are some po good possible explanations as to why Matthew included the exceptions, um, writing to Jews, and the others did not. We won't go into those. Uh, but let's say there are, is a true exception. It is a rather narrow, uh, important exception to note for a specific situation if the other spouse is unfaithful in some sense. And the term sexual immorality can mean a lot of different things. So we won't go deeper in that, but I just want to kind of share a little bit personally uh, the quandary that I have as a pastor that uh, probably you do not, and that is I get asked to perform weddings, right, to officiate, and um, so as a Bible-believing person, I have to follow my own conscience and, and understanding of, of what I can or cannot do. Uh, I can't just say, well, who knows? Um, so there's, there's a, I just, I just want to tell you a little bit how I've come to, uh, God's giving me peace about my personal practice with two simple, simple uh, statements. One is because of biblical statements like 1 Corinthians 7 and some of the passages, um, I just cannot in good conscience uh, perform a remarriage, okay? I can't perform a remarriage of someone who has been divorced. But number two, and this can seem contradictory, but to me there's no contradiction at all, and that is that because of the uncertainties of these passages, because of, of differences of interpretation, and because of God's clear blessing on, on, on many second, third marriages, I, have, I feel no sense of judgment towards anyone who is divorced or remarried. And I don't think those are contradictory things. I just simply need to know what I can or cannot do personally, but... Uh, isn't that how so much of our life is, that we don't have to decide everything for everybody else, right? We can show grace completely. So um, I feel no judgment uh, 
realize that if you're divorced, remarried, or, or whatever. Um, I just have peace about those two things. Those are some of the uncertainties, okay? We're, we're left kind of like God allows, I mean, God allowed that we, he knew there'd be different ways of looking at this. There are some, uncert, there are some certainties that I'm far more interested in. And I'm just going to pick out two that come from these passages. And the first certainty is this. When we're tempted to think there's someone better, God's will is permanence. And, and we, need to, we need to reckon uh, with that. God's plan is permanent. We have a world that's telling us, if, if you have problems, your soulmate is probably out there someplace. And voila, it's somebody you're kind of liking and flirting with already, right? No, no. Of course there's going to be people that do not have the faults of your spouse. Uh, does that make it God's will then to dissolve the marriage and divorce and pursue someone else? Clearly not. God's, God's plan is permanence. And that takes a, a tremendous amount of perseverance and humility. Uh, so much of it is about humility. Uh, Lord, what, what, what do I need to change about me in this situation? Another certainty is that when we think we must be happy, God's will is our holiness. Uh, happiness is not the ultimate. Uh, happiness in my emotion is not more important than holiness before God. If God's will was your happiness, you would always be, wealthy, be healthy. You'd always have enough money. Your children would never disappoint you. And your spouse would be amazing all the time. I mean, he, she would know your love language and your longings and say all the right things, never roll their eyes, never give you a disapproving look. And what would be the point of dying and going to heaven? Because, I mean, you've got it right, right here. Of course, I'm being facetious, but God gave us these passages knowing just how hard marriage would be, and it's still his core plan for society. And it's even more importantly for us as believers, it's his core plan for our growing in holiness. Uh, I've mentioned before Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Marriage, subtitled, What If God's Plan for Marriage Was Not Your Happiness, But Your Holiness? a profound statement. Marriage is God's major, if you're married, God, your marriage will be God's major way of making an impact in your life to grow more like Christ. The, the, a sinner married to a sinner is like the perfect laboratory to expose our own sin and enable us to say, okay, God, I am desperately in need of your help to become the person in this marriage you want me to be. So don't waste God's best plan for your holiness if you're married. And if you're not married yet, don't let these warnings deter you, saying, I'm not getting into that situation. <laughs> but rather let it elevate your appreciation for the plan of God in marriage, and may it focus you that I want to marry someone who is as committed to growing in holiness through marriage, spiritually united 
so that we are trying to come to the same goal. And that's what oneness is all about. Often with pre-married couples, I, I draw a, uh, a triangle with three layers of how God wants to build a marriage. It's, it's the first layer is spiritual unity. If you're not on the same page spiritually, you've got nowhere to go. Spiritual unity. We both are pursuing Christ. The second level is a, a relational or emotional unity. That's where, you, you, that's where most of life is lived. You, you enjoy being together. You're able to, to work through some of those personalities things or your personalities complement each other. So there's a spiritual unity. There's a, there's a relational, emotional unity. And then there's a physical unity. That's the intimacy in marriage. That's his plan for, for sexuality. The world turns that triangle on its head all the time, right? It's all about the physical. Try to picture a triangle surviving, on, standing on its peak. No, a triangle survives because the base is, is clear. Paul answers one more question, specifically the Corinthians must have asked, what if you're married to an unbeliever? Verses 12 to 14. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord. That doesn't mean it's not inspired, it's just saying that like the rest of the book is all inspired by God, but didn't come by direct verbal inspiration, uh, revelation. Uh, this, is, this is part of that. Here it is. If any brother, that's spiritual brother, a believing man, has a wife who is not a believer in Christ, that is, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Why? For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So stay together because there is, and we'll talk about it, some kind of a spiritual impact by staying together. So if you find yourself married to an unbeliever and they're willing to live with you, great. Make it the best marriage possible. Even though you don't have that spiritual unity, make it the best marriage possible as you, as you follow Christ. If you think about it, the Corinthian church was mostly all, in fact, probably all, un, uh, new believers. Paul had only come several years before to introduce the gospel. People had believed in Christ. These people are all, you know, two, three-year-old spiritually uh, Christians. And so, because we come to faith in Christ individually, there would be many of these situations where one is a believer and one uh, is not. <clears throat> Just a just a couple of times uh, in, in, in these years of, of, of pastoring have I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with a couple when they both put their faith in Christ that same time. And it's really special because uh, they come to faith in Christ together and, and they grow together and, and they're on that kind of that same trajectory, right? Um, it's rare, however. So usually it's, it's one and then many times it has been another. But what to do when you're in that state? And Paul simply says, Stay willing to stay, stay. Why? It's that verse um, 14. Somehow the spouse and children are sanctified. It's that term for holy. How are they sanctified? Doesn't make them believers, doesn't get them to heaven. What does it mean to be sanctified? 
If you remember last week, we were talking about um, how we are to be holy sexually, kind of like how the, the, the vessels in the temple of the Old Testament were made holy. They were declared to be holy, and they had a certain purification process. But what it really means, what, what being sanctified really means is to be set apart, that they are reserved and special just for God's purposes. And so this is a profound statement that when there is even just one believer in the family, in the household, God sees that household in a special sense. And God is going to be working in that family because there is one person who is a believer and that person is no doubt praying for their spouse to come to faith in Christ. And that person is seeking to see their children be raised to understand and, and follow Christ. And that believer is also seeking to live a Christ-like example to accomplish those things, wants to be used by God. And so that household is, is special or set apart, sanctified before God. Peter wrote about the same thing, actually, in, in addressing wives specifically. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So, so be the best believing spouse possible, and God can use your life. But what if the unbeliever despises your new faith? for example, or for whatever reason, divorces you. Verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So the believer is in no obligation to somehow insist, demand, stop uh, if, if an unbeliever, believing spouse who is initiating a divorce. Let them depart. What can you really do anyhow? They, they pursue it, they pursue it. Because God has called us to peace, very practical, uh, show grace, live, live as peaceably as possible uh, in, the, in the pain of divorce, in the, in the aftermath of divorce, live at peace as much as possible. Don't make things worse by somehow being stubborn and saying, no, we can't do this, but practical, practical. Verse 16, you can almost see Paul saying, you do understand just how practical this is. Verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You have no guarantee. You want them to stay. You want them to be saved, but you can't make them. No one can, no one can manipulate the decisions of a other person's heart, can they? And so this becomes a place where we understand uh, clearly the, the, the reality of, of mankind's free will to make choices, but also where we and our responsibility is to rest in God's sovereignty of those things that we cannot control, and we certainly cannot control uh, someone's faith in Christ or not and their eternal destiny. We leave that in God's hands. So there you have some vital marriage matters. Uh, we wade into some uh, practical issues about sex and marriage and divorce and, and remarriage. And, and if nothing else, uh, whatever your marital status here is, or if you're a younger person thinking <clears throat> towards the future, please realize how important, how seriously God uh, considers His design for marriage. 
and sexuality because it's a great plan. It's a great plan. It's a, it's a, it's a plan where we are able to honor God and He is able to honor and bless us. And by blessing a family, blesses the church family. And by blessing the church family, He blesses the community. And by blessing a community, He affects the world, really. The nation and the world. And we praise Him for that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just <clears throat> thank You for the the clarity you seek to give us, and we accept even the places where some things are unclear. But this we know, Lord, that your plan for um, holiness in our lives, purity sexually, your plan for marriage, your plan for uh, the family is a good plan. And help us, Lord, in a, in a world that is rapidly uh, trying to change uh, views of, of, of sexuality and family, that uh, we have a sure word and that you're, you as our creator and our, and our savior, uh, your, your word did not change. And so help us to live holy in spite of the, uh, the, the impurity of our world, that we would honor you both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.